You're listening to the Hockey Podcast Network. New shows every day. Find us at thehockeypodcastnetwork.com or wherever you get your podcasts from. Welcome to your Canadian's Connection on Rocket Sports Radio. This premier hockey podcast featured on allhabs.net brings you the latest news, in-depth analysis, and expert commentary about the NHL's most storied franchise, the Montreal Canadiens, with your hosts, Joe Whalen and Rick Stevens. Our team of credentialed journalists provides behind-the-scenes insight on the Canadians, designed to inform, entertain, and engage Habs fans around the globe. We are proud to be the trusted source for all things Habs for more than a decade. This is the Canadians Connection Podcast. And hey, everyone, welcome to the Canadians Connection podcast here on Rocket Sports Radio, keeping you informed, engaged and entertained. Uh, my name is Amy Johnson, and I will be your co-host for this special edition of the Canadians Connection podcast here today. And of course, I am joined in studio by my wonderful co-host, Rick Stevens. Glad that you're here. Uh, now, usually uh, we get together on the Press Zone That's podcast, right. but uh, pleased to welcome you to the Canadians Connection for this uh, very special episode, the very special bonus episode that we have today. And the reason uh, we're together, this bonus episode is um, is a very special conversation that, that we had. Um, as you know, we've been talking for weeks that uh, we're a member, a very proud member of the Hockey Podcast Network, and uh, coming out sometime this week, uh, a brand new podcast to the Hockey Podcast Network, and it's called We're All a Little Crazy. Um, it's it's uh, about sports, it's about current events, uh, and it's about mental health. And uh, it includes um, some uh, great hosts. We have uh, NHL legend uh, and former Calgary Flame Theo Fleury. Uh, we have um, Eric Cusin, uh, former NBA League uh, executive, as well um, um, a chief revenue officer with the Florida Panthers, and uh, Darren Ravel, uh, who's a sports business analyst. Those three have gotten together and, and put together a uh, this this podcast uh, put out by the Hockey Podcast Network and the Same Here Global Mental Health Movement. And we were lucky enough. To have uh, to have two of those m- members of uh, of the podcast, that being Theo Fleury and Eric Hewson. Absolutely, and uh, Rick and I were the ones who got to sit down with Theo and Eric recently and kind of do a deep dive on not only what their podcast about is about, but but why 
they feel it's necessary to get a new message out about uh, mental health in today's landscape and so forth. And if you listen to this week's episode, uh, this past weekend's episode of The Canadian's Connection, you got a little sneak peek of the interview. Uh, Rick and Joseph uh, played uh, probably the first 20 minutes or so of the interview just to give you a taste of the really fascinating and compelling conversation that we had. But that was just the tip of the iceberg. So today, you're going to get to hear the interview in its entirety. What you heard on Saturday, if you did tune into that, um, was was just a small portion of it. Uh, so if you heard that, we're going to invite you once the interview starts. If you don't want to hear that first initial segment again, just jump ahead 24 minutes into the interview, and that'll line you up right where things left off on Saturday. If you have not heard any part of this interview, well, then we invite you to sit back and really soak this in. It's it's a very in-depth look uh, at some very raw and real impact that uh, the talking about mental health has, uh, these gentlemen's personal experiences with the highs and lows and challenges about mental health, and really changing the message that's out there today. It's a fascinating conversation. As you've heard us mention before, we are a uh, proud affiliate of the Hockey Podcast Network here at the Canadians Connection and, and happy to be part of that network. And coming up soon, debuting on the Hockey Podcast Network is a brand new show uh, called We're All a Little Crazy, hosted by Theo Fleury, Darren Ravel, and Eric Cusin. And we, Rick and I, are very happy to be joined today by two of those hosts. Uh, Theo Fleury and Eric Cusin are here with us today. Guys, thanks so much for being here and uh, joining us here on the Canadians Connection. Yeah, thanks for having us. Uh, we're, uh, we're very excited about uh, the new venture, so... And I, uh, you know, building off of our initial conversation, I, I, I again, as an Islanders fan, I, I, there's there's still a lot of love even going back to 93. So <laughs> look forward to this. Well, that's very good. That's very good. You know, my first question for you really, um, it's, it's about the new podcast. It's a it's an ex, it's an exciting new show. Um, starting from Eric, I know you are the uh, the founder of uh the same, uh, the hashtag same here, global mental health movement, um, a, a new show kind of trying to help normalize the conversation about mental health and, and, and really get it into people's uh, sphere as far as mental health advocacy. When listening to your promo materials, there was one phrase that came out that really jumped out to me that I'd love to ask you about. And it was that quote, you want to rip the Band-Aid off in a very real way. And I was just wondering if you can explain that a bit. Like, what what is the real way to talk about mental health versus what's typically offered out there these days? Absolutely. And, and I so appreciate that question. Um, and, and I appreciate that in the promo you picked up on on that line. You know, I, I, I can only go based on my own lived experience. And mental health was not something that was on my radar screen for so long. Um, I was an athlete growing up and then I was fortunate enough to, to work in professional sports. And so I had this nose to the ground, like high performer, high achiever mentality. And then, you know, six months into my tenure with the Florida Panthers just hit the fan. There's no other way to describe it. And my brain and my body just conked out. And the way that I was treated to try and get back those cognitive uh, functions that had escaped me was this traditional route of, hey, we got to find out what's wrong with you with this label. You either have <laughs> depression, anxiety, PTSD, OCD, 
And every doctor I went to, there was a different diagnosis based on what their, um, you know, what their area of expertise was. They were able to find something wrong with me that fit within the criteria of, of a label that they were going to give me. Um, and so I tried, you know, 50 different psychotropic drug combinations. I tried TMS therapy where they shoot electromagnetic waves in your brain. I tried tried shock therapy where they try to shock your brain back into through seizures into almost restarting it. And none of them worked for me. And ultimately I healed based on discovering that there were events in my life prior that I had lived through events with my brother being sick over a long period of time, near death on many occasions and actually losing three of my close friends that had affected my central nervous system. And so looking at this topic, not as, the sick, the one in five who are ill versus the four and five who are healthy. And instead flipping that conversation saying five and five of us face challenges in our life, like those challenges I just described with my brother and my friends that impact our mental health. That's paradigm shifting. That's ripping the bandaid off and saying, let's get away from this disease and this disorder model. And let's talk about the everyday stuff we all go through that cumulatively builds inside of us much like plaque builds in our arteries from a physical health standpoint, and it happens in a very quiet way where we don't notice it until we have a heart attack. Well, we've got people now who are working on their physical health in a proactive way. We want to start talking about mental health in a proactive way, the same way that we do physical health. So, so kind of going right along with that in, in a broad sense, what are, what are you really trying to achieve by putting this podcast out there and getting people to talk about some things in, and maybe make them a little bit uncomfortable in doing so? Yeah. You know, I, I put out something the other day that Darren had said when we had done one of these interviews that, you know, it's about us ha having comfortably uncomfortable conversations. So you take current events, like Theo just sent me a text and, and I know I'm giving you a specific example about a broader topic that you asked though, but he just sent me a text about an NFL, an NFL player, unfortunately, that was involved in a murder-suicide. Mm -hmm. Story just came out two hours ago. Right. And you see everyone rushing right now to, well, head trauma, head trauma causes. Uh, we know nothing about this guy's background. We right. know nothing about what he was like growing up, isolation, bullying, anything that happened to schoolyard, his family life. And automatically, we want to put an immediate explanation on what happened, right? right. So the uncomfortable conversation is opening up this idea of the stuff that happens to us in life. Let's take a look at the way our government's talking about it. Let's take a way look at our, the way our politicians are or aren't talking about it. Let's take a look at the way that pharma talks about it. Can we dive into these current event topics that we're hearing about and actually pick them apart a little bit in a way that maybe isn't so comfortable for everyone because we're so used to saying, here's a single reason why it happened. Okay, on to the next story. We want to dive deeper and actually find out what's at play here. What are all the factors that get involved and how can we talk about it in a more responsible way? Because right now, you know, Theo's line, I'm stealing from him <laughs> before he gets to talk is <laughs> we have the greatest awareness in the history of our planet of mental health because of social media and people talking up. And yet our rates are as awful as they are. What that means is the messages aren't correct, because if the volume's that high and we're still getting these terrible rates, something needs to change. Just before we bring uh, Theo into the conversation, uh, my introduction to your organization, the same here, Global M Mental Health Movement, was, um, you know, being a uh, my very short hockey minor league career uh, uh, as a wannabe <laughs> goaltender, uh, keeping an eye on goaltenders. Uh, all of a sudden, two years ago, a year or so ago, we see a mm -hmm. hashtag, the hashtag same here 
on the side of Robin Leonard's mask. And everybody immediately started asking questions. What's this about? Uh, mm-hmm. And it relates back to this celebrity alliance uh, that that you uh, put together to to openly talk about these issues. Well, you know, the, interestingly, because we'll go to Theo in a second, so so I'll get to Robin. But the celebrity alliance started with Theo as the first member of that, and that's why I think Theo and I are kindred spirits, and I consider him an older brother in a way, and that's why we're so close. Is by realization when I went through what I went through and I think was treated the wrong way by doctors and then learned uh, proper ways to heal was that we all have a story to tell. And when I was looking at the way that celebrities had shared their stories, most of the stories were, you know, this particular celebrity has this label, right? And how do they get through dealing with this particular disorder that they have? And Theo shared in a very different way. He shared about his sexual abuse very openly he shared about the chaos in his house growing up with his mother and father and addiction issues. That was the vulnerability that when we give the details behind what we go through, that leads us to now an understanding that, hey, just like that person, just like Theo, even though he's on the ice and even though he's performing at a high level, I can relate to that. I was abused when I was younger or my parents were volatile in the household when I was younger now I can say same here, right? And so now when you talk about someone like Robin, how does Robin get involved and why is Robin wearing it on his helmet? And I think this will endear a lot of people to Robin when they hear the story. We've been in existence for about a year and a half and Darren, who's, who's part of this group, has a pretty, pretty large Twitter following. And um, we were watching how, you know, Robin was performing at a high level and after, you know, my Islanders, you know, unfortunately, because I would have loved for him to still be with the team, I didn't know Robin personally at the time, but I was watching closely how he's performing at this high level, yet no one's willing to give him a starter's contract. No one's willing to give him a multi-year contract. And so Darren and I just put out there through Darren's Twitter because of how big his platform is, this concept that there's no way for us to, to, to be able to parcel out that, you know, Robin's lack of getting a contract in some ways related to his mental health. And, you know, uh, Robin picked up on that and wrote us a private direct message and said, I want to hear more about what you're doing. And, and, you know, I do feel like I've been treated that way, that there's a misconception, not only in hockey, but in society about how performance is affected just because, you know, you're open about what you've been through. (laughs) He said, I think openness is what's needed and, and we don't have enough people being open and and in it, hopefully this helps bring this all now full circle with the questions that you've asked is the reason why Robin bought into, I think, what we were doing and, and proactively asked, right? Like I, I sent Theo the text. I'll never forget the day Robin gets the drawing from Dave Art, the, the, the popular uh, yeah. <laughs> artist who does most of these goalie masks. He's like, hey, man, do you mind if I put same here on your mask? <laughs> my mask? And I wanted to pinch myself and be like, are you serious? Um, <laughs> do I mind? But... <laughs> Put it on there a few times. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Well, he did. He put it on the left and the right. Both sides. There you go. Yeah. So so Robin's understanding of what we were doing. Now, keep in mind, Robin is the poster child for, oh, Robin has bipolar, right? This specific disorder. But Robin's message was the same as ours, which is it doesn't matter what my label is. It matters. What matters is I grew up and he talks about the volatile childhood that he had growing up and the different traumas that he faced. So. As Robin's saying, same here, I go through these challenges in life that have impacted me where ultimately end up resulting was I'm dealing with bipolar right now, but it doesn't matter what your challenge is. I got you. I got your back. 
I've been through things just like the rest of you have. And when he's saying the rest of you, he's talking to the whole hockey fandom world and beyond. Um, and so hopefully that background is helpful in terms of bringing in how Theo is a part of this, how Robin's a part of this, how any athlete is a part of this is it's the stories that connect us. It's our stories of challenge and it's not our disorder labels. So Theo, um, for Canadians fans of a, a certain generation, um, when we connect you and the Calgary Flames with the Montreal Canadiens, it's it's a heartbreaking story is what it is, because we think back to the 89 final, Stanley Cup final. Um, that was uh, that was the last team, last time that two Canadian teams faced each other in the Stanley Cup final. It was a big deal. Um, and as it turned out, uh, we know the Flames uh, won that series four games to two, and they were the only, the Calgary Flames are the only visiting team to have ever won a Stanley Cup at the Montreal Forum. Um, and for you, uh, in your rookie season, the whole thing must have been rather surreal. Um, you know, getting to, to, to do a lap on, on the Montreal Forum ice and, and with, with uh, the Montreal Forum fans there who... Uh, were relatively kind and and <laughs> um, and, uh, and 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 appreciated the 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 effort. Yeah, I know it's hard for Montreal Canadian fans <laughs> to actually come to grips with they actually lost. But, uh, <laughs> you know, you guys beat us in '86, so right. we have to play the rubber match, which I doubt will ever happen in my lifetime. But uh, maybe maybe someday it will. Um, but uh, yeah, it was an incredible uh, experience. Um, you know, I couldn't have come into a better situation uh, as a young player to be mentored by, you know, so many incredible uh, people. And I, I th and I think that's what it really comes down to is the amount of quality people that we not only had uh, on the management side, but as a as a group as a whole. You know, you're not going to be around a better quality group of people. And, uh, you know, we really enjoyed playing with each other. Uh, we enjoyed spending time with each other away from the rink. And, and uh, you know, at that time, I think <clears throat> I think there was only 550,000 people that lived in Calgary. So we were still like, a you know, basically a small town. And, uh, you know, we were always out in the community. We were always doing stuff for charity and you know different stuff and so you know those are the things that that i remember probably more than the actual winning of the stanley cup because uh i think it's it's more important about the process of winning because you know the last thing that happens uh you know when you win something is you know you get a ring or you get to carry the cup around or whatever but you know, I'm 52 years old now and I get invited to all kinds of charity events. Why? Because people want to know about the process. They want to know what's going on in the dressing room. They want to know what's going on behind the scenes. And, and to me, those are the things that I remember probably more than the actual, you know, the, you know, the, the last 10 seconds when we were counting down and all that. But, uh, um, you know, uh, when you're growing up as a kid, you know, you dream about first and foremost, uh, making it to the NHL. And then once you get there, you know, you dream about winning Stanley cups. And for me, you know, that happened, uh, 
all in the same season. And so um, it was a magical ride. Uh, you know, a lot of things fell into place uh, for our team. And, and uh, you know, ultimately it ended, uh, you know, in and you know i'm i'm a french canadian guy and uh when we were playing the habs in the final half of my family was not cheering for the calgary flames they were cheering, <laughs> they were, they were cheering for for montreal but uh you know it, it was a, an amazing experience and uh um you know, it, the, the amazing part of it is, you know, I won a Stanley Cup my first year and never really got a sniff until, you know, I went to Colorado and we lost uh, Dallas in game seven and then Dallas went on to beat Buffalo for their first Stanley Cup. But other than that, you know, um, uh, I didn't really get close, you know, uh, after that. And so uh, you realize how hard that trophy is to win and, uh um, you know, how physically demanding uh, it is to, you know, pl- pretty much play every second night for, you know, a couple of months. And, you know, you're, you're basically, uh, you know, living on adrenaline and, you know, excitement and all that. But, uh, but like I said, you know, the, uh, it was, it was truly an honor to play with that group of people and, uh, you know, it really kind of set me up for the rest of my career. Uh, you know, when I got uh, to a place of being a leader and, and uh, you know, teaching and, and uh, mentoring, you know, the young guys that would come, you know, come through the, the dressing room doors of the Calgary Flames. You talk about divided loyalties and, and we say all the time, hockey is a small community and, and the, you look at the lineups, and and you had on the Canadian side the the, the Gainies and the Carbonos and Richeys and uh, Robinson, and on on your side uh, Jim Poplinski, Lanny McDonald, uh, Rob Ramage um, won a cup uh, that year, uh, and then um, was uh, uh, moved to uh, to Montreal and won a cup again with with Montreal, <laughs> and is now a director of player development. Um, but, uh, you know, there, there was all kinds of Doug Gilmore, uh, played for both sides. Um, uh, even, uh, uh, the trainer, Jim Bearcat Murray had his own fan club in Montreal, uh, I that know. would get together at the Peel <laughs> pub and, and, and cheer on the flames. It was hockey is such a, a small community. And, um, so is, have, have, when, when you were going through difficult times, did that help you or, or. Um, you know, were there people that you could call on? Uh, were there were there uh, people there to uh, recognize what was going on and and uh, and kind of step in and and help out? Yeah, there was lots of people, but uh, you know, I wasn't ready for for the help. You know, um, and you know now being in the space now for almost thirteen years, you know, I I. You know, the, the last person to see their life sort of going down the drain is is themselves, right? And and I was the same way. You know, I I thought that I was managing well. I thought, you know, as long as I was playing, you know, half decently or well, that you know they basically left you alone. And so, but there was, you know, I had lots of meetings with coaches and general managers and owners and stuff that uh, were concerned. Uh, I even had a meeting with Gary Bettman one time, and you know. I just wasn't ready. 
Yeah, you know what? I I, I really uh, have a lot of respect for Gary for the way that he handled me on that particular day because he didn't care about hockey. He actually cared about me, the, the person and the human being. And I, I'll never forget uh, that conversation that I had with him because it was, you know, it was from his heart and, uh, you know, it showed that he uh, really cared uh, about, uh, about me. And, and uh, yeah, so there's lots of people that were willing to help, but uh, I wasn't ready for the help. And, and, you know, a lot of, like the most common email I get is I have a son, I have a daughter, I have a niece, a nephew, a granddaughter, grandson that's going down the wrong path. And I don't know what to do. And, you know, uh, like I said, being in this space for 13 years, you know, I know that those people that are reaching out are the enablers, right? Because as addicts and alcoholics, what we're really good at is we're really good at collecting enablers because the more enablers we have, the longer our behavior can last because they're always going to pick, you know, pick up the pieces. They're going to fix you. They're going to, you know, all that stuff. So I know automatically that the person that emailing me is the enabler. And so I quickly, you know, uh, respond back by saying, does this person that you're talking about actually want help? Because in my experience, uh, if you don't want help, there is nothing I can do that's going to help you. You you have to want the help. And, you know, um, 50, 600 days ago, you know, I hit my knees in a washroom and I reached out for help. And, and, uh, and the day that I did that, the day that I asked for help was the day that I saved my own life because I was actually ready for the help and I was willing to do the work and I was willing to dive in and, and, uh, you know, take a look at all of my trauma and, uh, you know, all of my, uh, addictive behaviors and, and all the wreckage that I caused, uh, in, you know, several relationships with family and wives and kids and friends and all that. And so, um, uh, it was the, it was the greatest decision I've ever made, and uh, it's the thing that I'm absolutely the most proud of. And and uh, so so many amazing things have happened uh, since I made that choice and made that decision. That uh, that you know now I'm 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 in this space 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I've dedicated the rest of my life to. Uh, you know, figuring out mental illness and trauma and, and addiction and, and all of that. And, uh, you know, that's, that's how Eric and I, uh, connected was, you know, I was out there with, you know, telling my story, helping people. And, uh, you know, I, I wasn't, I wasn't really attaching labels to my story. I was just, you know, being as vulnerable as I possibly could. And, and that vulnerability really created, uh, a safe space in society and then you know after my book came out in 2009 like I got run over like completely run over and and uh you know guys in their 40s 50s 60s 70s 80 years old guys were coming up to the book tables and telling me their sexual abuse story for the very first time in their whole entire lives and so um you know I've really I've really found the true purpose for my life and, and a reason why I went through all of the uh, struggles that I went through early on in my life was to get me to this place where I could, 
you know, be, be a helper and be a healer. And I think, you know, the piggybacking off of Theo's comments about, you know, needing to, to find someone who's, who's ready to get the help. You know, Theo and I were, were on a podcast the other day and, and bringing up how sometimes when you're a high-level performer in terms of God-given abilities and you're able to perform at that high level despite what you're dealing with in your mind, despite what you've been through in your life, you've been able to fix things your entire career, right? Like just grin and bear it, white knuckle through it, work harder. You're supremely talented. You're going to get better at it. And so if that's the way that it's always been either on the playing surface or in my case in the boardroom and it's, Hey, whatever obstacle there is, you can get over it. You don't think that when you're dealing with these other things, that it's something that you can overcome on your own. And I don't, you know, I don't even know that that's a shame thing. I think that's just like a, the way that you're wired is, hey, anytime it's been there before me, I've been able to run through it. So this should be no different. And unfortunately, what happens so often, I'm sure Theo will go a little more into the story <laughs> to go on with this, is in Theo's case, ending up with a fully loaded shotgun rattling between his teeth. In my case, you know, being bedbound for two and a half years and staring at a ceiling, you know, and in Robin's case, reaching rock, rock bottom before, you know, he was able to ask for help and, and, uh, and go through the substance abuse program with the NHL is, you know, we want to open up and talk about these stories in advance because there are so many people out there who think like, I can do this on my own. I don't need the help. In fact, I'm not even noticing things that other people are noticing in me. And then it gets to the point where their life is on it on its last leg. And then that's where they have to get the help. Well, we should, we should be a lot more proactive and, and understanding how the brain body connection works so that people could start to work on themselves much sooner. So kind of furthering to that, and this question is, is for both of you. Um, when you were facing those darkest moments, when you were hitting those rock bottom moments, and and as you say, it's until until a person wants help, the the offers for help are not going to help. When did you know something needed to change? When did you know that the path that you were on and you made that, you know, you talk about being hitting your knees in the washroom and, and knowing that the path had to change because the path that you were currently on no longer was sustainable? Yeah, for me, I, I uh, you know, after the gun in- incident in the desert, you know, uh, you know, I came to the realization that I wanted to live, but uh I know how I had no idea how to live life on life's terms. And, uh, and so, uh, the, the choice to, to live, um, you know, was the inspiration to change everything, you know, everything about my life. And, and, you know, that's what I did. And, and, you know, baby steps, uh, along the way, I had to get sober first. I had to get my mind clear, you know, so I did that. And then, you know, and then really started to dive into making sense of the trauma, you know, and, uh, you know, like I said, when I wrote the book and then helping other people, uh, you know, we have this, uh, this saying that helping is healing. And what I have found is the more people I've helped, the more that I've healed myself because I'm not inside of my own head when I'm helping other people and my, you know, my brain is constantly telling me uh, lies. And, you know, when I live in my heart chakra, 
you know, life is pretty simple. Life is pretty basic. Uh, life is filled with peace, joy, happiness, and serenity. And, and anybody who struggles with mental illness, that's the end goal is peace, joy, happiness, and serenity. That's, that's what this is all about. And, and not only that, you know, um, when I started to go out on the speaker circuit, you know, I started to run into all these experts in, you know, different areas and, you know, I sort of velcroed myself to them and, and just listened and started to learn, uh, you know, about the brain and how the brain is really resilient and how you can rewire it and reshape it and create neural, new neural pathways. And, uh, you know, there's a, there's a big trend right now, uh, in the psychedelic world uh, that is getting some incredible studies and some incredible, incredible results uh, for people who are microdosing different types of psychedelics and all that. And so, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of hope in this space, you know, and, but, but I think we've done a, such a poor job of, uh, of, of the message, you know, like every mental health campaign starts with, you know, one in five, one in four. And I'm like, mm -hmm. why are we shaming the one person who has, you know, mental health struggles? When in fact, in my own research over the last 13 years is that it's five and five. It's all of us. Like nobody's immune first and foremost from experiencing trauma in their life. And that traumatic event, uh, whatever it is, um, you know, uh, totally damages your nervous system and your nervous system doesn't work properly, which means you're not processing the food that you eat where, where actually your brain chemistry is created is in the gut. And, you know, uh, all, all the food is, is, you know, covered in pesticides and synthetic versions of, you know, all these other things. And, and, you know, when, when you live sort of in a toxic environment, you know, it, there's no doubt that you're going to eventually, uh, you know, struggle with, with, uh, you know, anxiety and depression and, you know, all of these things. And, and what, what we've discovered is that there's a whole holistic environment uh, with really simple, easy practices that if you use them on a daily basis, you'll, you will get better. And, and so, uh, yeah, it's been, it's been amazing to, to be around, uh, you know, all these experts and all these people who sort of, uh, think outside of the big pharma box because big pharma owns pretty much every, you know, disease on the planet. And what we've discovered is that there is another way to do this. And the way to do it doesn't have any side effects. It only has uh, exponential benefits if you practice them, you know, on a daily basis. I'm, I'm laughing as, as, or I should say smiling with, with a little bit of pride, like as Theo's talking about the, the, the one in five versus the, the, the five and five. So Theo and I had been talking for a number of months before ever meeting. And then we had this launch event at the end of 2017 um, where he came into town and we're getting interviewed by CBS radio here in New York. 
and we had this panel of, of other celebs that were with him. So if you remember like Amanda Beard, who was a big time Olympic swimmer, mm-hmm. kind of like the Michael Phelps before, uh, you know, on the women's side before there was Michael Phelps, mm-hmm. you know, and a couple, a couple of others. And so the woman, Mar- Marla Diamond, who was, was interviewing us, I'm kind of sitting next to her and she is there with this other group. And she says, you know, Eric, you've brought together this group of athletes and people with platforms to talk about mental health. And then she looks down at her sheet and she says, according to the National Institute of Mental Health, one <laughs> in five people have mental illness. And as she's saying that, I just look up and I almost start laughing and Theo and I lock eyes and we'd never rehearsed this before. We just look at each other and we mouth the words. We're like, it's five and five, not one and five, right? <laughs> and, you know, now circling back to what Theo is saying with like what pharma owns, right? Like, here's my skeptic's, my skeptic's view on the one and five. If it's really one in five, why for eight years has it stayed at one in five? Like, usually if you're in the business of trying to show improvement in one area, you're either going to say, great news, we're down to 19.3%, or (laughs) bad news, it's up to 20.7%, right? It's always staying at that one in five. It's a simple message Mm -hmm. because they don't like our message, which is if it's five and five, that means we all deal with it. It lives on a continuum and it happens at different points in our lives and therefore we can be proactive and work on it. And if not, if they keep it as one in five, then there's this thick line between sick and healthy. And what happens when you're on the line of the sick line? That's when you need to take medications because medications are your cure, right? And by the way, full disclosure, I'm still on a little bit of medication. I think where where we have an issue with pharma is that medication being positioned as the cure, Mm -hmm. the, the commercials that we see here in the US where a cartoon character with a sad face 15 seconds into a 30 second commercial gets uh-huh. introduced the pill and then it's beautiful music. The smiling face comes out the, the blue clouds instead of the, or the blue sky instead of the clouds and the birds are chirping. That doesn't help people heal, right? Like that helps people think I'll wait until I, you know, worst case scenario, get one of these disorders and then I'll take a pill and I'll be fine. So I don't need to be proactive about it. And then, and back to your original question with, with Theo was answering, you know, I think, so often in both of our cases and in Robin's cases, we, we waited until we were dysfunctional, right? Like mm-hmm. Theo being on that floor in the washroom, me being in the bed, uh, staring at the ceiling happens because we don't, we, we're not educated. We're not taught anything different. Right. And, 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 you know, you compare the two, again, I'm talking here in the States, we start teaching kids in second grade about jump rope for heart because you have to have your heart healthy so that you get plaque out of your arteries and eat green leafy vegetables. We're telling kids at a young age not to wait until this, you know, catastrophe happens where you have a heart attack or you have a stroke. The problem with, with things with mental health is even when major traumatic events happen, like the the loss of a loved one at a young age, um, or even kind of these micro traumas that happen, you know, Theo and I talk a lot about like, if you're on a plane, and you're three years old and you experience turbulence for the first time, but you don't have words to describe your fear. Well, okay, you remember being in a car and the road was bumpy and that didn't feel good. And now you're up in the air and all the way up in the sky and the the plane feels bumpy. That's a traumatic event to a young child that doesn't know how to explain that to his parents. And maybe their parents aren't the ones that are so touchy-feely and comforting. And so now the child feels alone and now thinks about that incessantly. Oh my God, this plane could go down at any point sees a plane in the air 
every day for the next you know 10 days and is is continuously thinking that thought over and over again what happens the next time i go on a plane so what happens with our mental health is we these incremental changes slight changes happen over time and we might not necessarily notice them so you take a theo's case i'm an nhl player i'm an, i'm i'm producing on the ice even when he was with the with the rangers right like i'm putting up good numbers especially that second year so you're able to put those other things on the back burner that even though those incremental changes are happening, okay, I'm not as interested in things as I was before. I'm not as excited about this. I'm not as clear-minded as I was before. But you know what? I'm performing at a high level. Okay, everything's fine. So until the immediacy of life literally being yanked away from you starts to happen, you, we have too many people who it's like, okay, uh, you know, hey, keep moving along. Uh, maybe this is happening because I'm getting older, because I've seen things already in the past and things aren't new to me anymore. That's not how we should be living life. We should be living life saying there's a vibrancy there. How do I maintain that? How do I maintain this overall health around me? And we don't, you know, the reason why Theo and I think talk so much about this stuff is because we don't want it to be, I think you asked an excellent question, that people start to ask for help and start to work on themselves when it's rock bottom. How do we start getting that process going well in advance? Well, and to flip that on, on, on to flip my previous question on its head a little bit, uh, Theo, you even talked about how, um, you know, addicts and alcoholics will surround themselves with enablers and that the the people who are reaching out to you to figure out how to help their, their loved one are most likely an enabler. So on the other side of the equation, the loved ones, the friends, the family members that see someone in crisis, see someone uh, going down the wrong path, what if if that person isn't ready for help yet, what are the coping mechanisms that those loved ones should be utilizing and and what is it what is their role? what is the best and most healthy way for them to go about their day-to-day until that person, I don't know, to try to help that person get to that point that they want help or or just in, in the in the impatient waiting for that person to need to say, okay, I need help. What, wh- how, do the, how do the loved ones cope? Yeah. Well, and I should have elaborated more on the enabler part because what happens is the addict and the alcoholic eventually make the enablers sick. And those people that are emailing me, I know that they're sick and tired of, you know, trying to fix uh, this particular person. And I always say uh, the best thing you can say to the person who's struggling is, first and foremost, I want you to know that I love and care deeply about you. I see you're going down the wrong road and down the wrong path. Um I need to go take care of myself. And in the meantime, I want you to know that when you are ready for the help that I'm offering you today, I will be here the second that you need the help that you need. And then you, yeah. And then you go take care of yourself and you go work on the stuff that you need to work on. Cause ultimately the only thing we can do is take care of ourselves. Right. And, uh, which is a difficult concept, you know, um, because, you know, we all grew up in the suck it up era, right? Mm-hmm. When, when, when I went to the Moose Jaw Warriors, when I was 16 years old, they treated us like military, right? 
They tear you down and then they build you back up and you're not allowed to cry. You're not allowed to talk about negative emotions. None of that stuff. You suck it up. And so, uh, we are now seeing the highest rates of mental illness. We are seeing the highest rates of suicide. Why? Because of the suck it up era. This is the, the after effects of, you know, seven generations of people sucking it up, not talking about, you know, their true feelings and what's going on inside of them. Then, you know, we have big pharma who, you know, pretty much every, uh, every second commercial on TV is a pill that I can take to alleviate, um, uh, you know, whatever symptoms I'm going through and, and, you know, all we're doing is applying a Band-Aid solution uh, and we're not getting to the core of the issue because at the core of every single issue we have in society is trauma, right? You know, we don't have a systemic racist problem. We have a systemic trauma problem. And, uh, you know, we're very aware that you know, there's lots of mental illness. We're very aware that there's lots of suicide. We're very aware that there's lots of addictions, but we continually leave out the trauma. And trauma is what brings us into the mental health space, the addiction space, the suicide space. And what I have found is that nobody, nobody wants to talk about trauma. Because when I stand on the stage and when I'm speaking and I say, uh, you know, I was raped 150 times by my coach, you should see what my audience does. Their heads hit the floor, they disassociate, uh, and they pass the shame back on to me because of the guilt of of the fact that, that we have allowed sexual abuse to become rampant in our society, right? And because of the church made sex a bad thing, you know, and and the consequences that are attached to sexual behavior, nobody wants to talk about it, you know? And and so, you know, with this podcast, like we're gonna change the conversation because whatever's whatever's been, Whatever people have been doing around this space is only adding to the stigma. It's only adding to the judgment. And we want to get rid of all of that and just have a conversation. Because we need to to normalize. We need to normalize this conversation because this conversation is not normalized. Because people are afraid of the stigma. People are afraid of being judged. People don't know where to go to get help. You know all of these things, and so yeah, there's no there's there's no doubt in my mind why you know mental illness and you know suicide is one of the big it's bigger than COVID nineteen. It is the biggest epidemic on the planet, and we need to change and we need to change the conversation because whatever whatever we've talked about up until now has only added to the stigma. It hasn't created any safe spaces. It hasn't created uh, a higher uh, consciousness uh, in the world where, you know, we need to deal with this. Yep. We need to deal with it now. I mean, Theo's, Theo's vulnerability as a public figure 
you know, it, I mentioned earlier is what drew me to him, but it kind of answers your question in terms of what do we do when someone's not ready for the help? I think the, the thing that I took from what Theo said that was most piercing is he said, as the helper, you're saying, I, I got to work on myself as well. What that does is it disarms the person that you're hoping will themselves ask for help because you're saying to that other person, I'm part of this group with you and I know I got to work on myself as well. And the opposite of that is what these campaigns that are out there do. So I'll give you an, an example of one of the campaigns. One of the campaigns is, how are you doing, comma, really, with a big question mark, right? That's the equivalent of taking a spotlight and putting it on a family member or friend who's not ready to talk and being like, hey, you haven't spoken to me yet, but now I really want you to talk to me. So make sure you, you open up and you tell me what you're going through, right? Someone's level of comfort and where they're, they're ready to talk, you know, there's this term in this mental health space that I only learned through lived experiences, Theo did as well, but we, we're, we're good students when we talk to the doctors of creating that safe space. And you create the safe space by being vulnerable yourself. And so when Theo shares, I was raped over 150 times. And when he's on the, in the same breath saying, we've been talking and talking and talking for the last decade plus, and yet it's actually making the stigma worse, people might look at him with that comment and say, what are you talking about, Theo? The athletes are coming out and sharing. Celebrities are coming out and sharing. Isn't that a good thing that we're talking more? But let me use the examples of Theo's sharing versus another athlete or celebrity sharing. When a celebrity comes out and says on their Twitter account and only on their Twitter account, I have bipolar, right? And I've been struggling with it for the last however many years. They become the champion for people who've been diagnosed with bipolar, which by the admittance of the groups that give us these numbers is a certain small percentage of the population. If you haven't been diagnosed with bipolar before, you can't relate to that tweet in that message. So now you're saying, okay, Robin Leonard has bipolar, right? <clears throat> but I don't know what that is. I don't like that label. That label sounds scary to me. I'm not willing to look and find out and educate myself what that's about. Our schools don't educate ourselves about that. So now it's like, okay, Robin Leonard lives in that category of those messed up people that have that label and that disorder on them. Compare that to Theo getting on a stage or being open in his Twitter, which is hard when you have those limited characters, but he still <laughs> finds a way to do it, and says, I was raped 150 times, right? What that does is it allows anyone who's been through the lived experience that he's been through to say, ah, got it. Okay, this is what mental health is when you talk about the stuff that you've been through. And so... The, the nuances of the way that we talk about it and the way that we create that safe space by telling the other people that we hope to get help what we ourselves have been through, that's what creates that psychological safety and that connection point for other people who are disengaging even more when all they're hearing is the labels. The commonality of our experience is really what ties us together. You're listening to The Canadian's Connection. I'm Rick Stevens with Amy Johnson, and we are in the midst of a fascinating conversation with Eric Hewson, former uh, pro sports executive and NHL legend Theo Fleury. I uh, just want to switch the focus to uh, the media. You talked about spotlights um, and wondered about the role of the media. And, and 
Um, 13 years ago, uh, I left my academic career to start Rocket Sports as an independent uh, media company because I didn't particularly like what I was seeing out there. Um, and, uh, you know, the, uh, we wonder how the, 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 mega, the, the mainstream legacy kind of media and how they contribute to athletes being so uh, closed off so that athletes have to retreat within themselves and and deliver the cliches and 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 canned answers and 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 it's the mainstream media who are always after the the clicks and the and the 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 gotcha and and um you know putting of the athlete their worst nightmares are are worst moments are headlines just headlines for uh, the mainstream media we We've endeavored to to take a more honest, more uh, objective, more ca- compassionate approach and become storytellers and advocates uh, for athletes. And and um, you know, I I, I think of uh, a Canadian's example, and that being Carey Price, who who arrived with Montreal and the, the vicious Montreal media being quite open. Um, it, Theo, you have a, a kind of a connection with the indigenous heritage of, of Carrie Price and, and uh, the connection to Williams Williams Lake. And and Carrie now has very short answers, very canned answers, very as as a protection uh, mechanism. And, and and I guess my question is is uh, to you is um, you know you, you talk about the your podcast is going to talk the right way about this and how has the media contributed to this. Um, you know, with <laughs> athletes, the way they have to protect themselves and, and maybe even withdraw it within themselves. <clears throat> well, you know, when <clears throat> four days before I was going to Toronto to launch my book, like I was in my pants. I was so scared because I had no idea, I had no idea first and foremost, what I was getting myself into. And secondly, uh, you know, I knew that the only thing that the media would be interested in would be to re-victimize me at every opportunity, right? So I spent four days on my computer researching absolutely every single thing I could find on the subject of child sexual abuse <clears throat> because I wanted to get a story of hope and healing and recovery out to the masses. So I go to Toronto. I do 300 interviews in the first four days that I'm there. Wow. You know, TSN, Sportsnet, I'm sitting on the big red couch with George Trombopoulos, you know, every major newspaper, you name it, right? And just like I predicted, the only thing they were interested in was the gory details of my sexual abuse. And they were victim blaming and all kinds of stupid, you know. And because I'd spent, you know, uh, probably 25 years in the media, I knew that I didn't have to answer any of the reporters' questions directly. So in every single interview, I had my own agenda. So no matter what question they asked me, it was my agenda. And so I accomplished what I wanted to accomplish, and I got this story of hope and healing and and recovery out to the masses. And, uh, um, you know, and then it's just carried on. Because what I had to do was I had to teach the media how to talk to survivors of sexual abuse that I wasn't going to put up with the, you know, with, with the same old, you know, a victim blaming and, you know, shaming and all, all this that, you know, uh, 
you know, because they love when the guy breaks down and cries in the interview and you know all that stuff. And you know, I wasn't, I wasn't gonna, I wasn't, gonna, I wasn't gonna have any part of that. And uh, and so, <clears throat> and you gotta, you gotta understand, most of the money that comes to the media people, they're controlled by the the advertising dollars. And you know, if you watch a, a half an hour sitcom. There's six minutes of commercials, and half of those commercials are what? Big Pharma, right? And so they control the message. I think that there are some wonderful, amazing people in the media, but they're, they've been silenced. They've been, they've been uh, um, scared into, you know, reporting news that, 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 that's – you know, it only attaches more fear and more anxiety, more, you know, just garbage. And, and, you know, I don't put up with that. You know, I, and, and you know, what's funny is, is, you know, I, I learned a little trick along the way that if you ask a, rep- a reporter a question, they don't know what to do because they're not, <laughs> to ask a question and while they're fumbling and bumbling and trying to figure out the answer then I take over the interview <laughs> I like that you know because you're not you're not trained to to answer questions right and so when you challenge them they don't know what to do with that and as they're trying to figure out well what do I do with this well then I just take over the interview and I get you know five six seven you know and and then the producers yelling at them in the ear to, to cut off the interview and they're so frazzled they don't know what to do and so i get an extra three or four or five minutes to you know to continually just get my message out there well that i suppose that's the <laughs> real I think the... sorry go ahead eric no well you know, i'm just piggybacking off of your question rick it, you know because from a media standpoint in terms of you know, how they're, they're hurting this conversation. So, so you were talking about like the headline grabbers, right. And the clickbait mm-hmm. and stuff like that. We work with a guy named Hayden Hurst uh, with the Atlanta Falcons, and he's been pretty open about his, uh, his own struggles. And uh, you know, he shared a story with the Baltimore sun when he was with the, the Ravens before he got traded to the Falcons and the title, uh, you know, he worked with the Baltimore sun to, to, to make sure that he had some editorial say in what the title of the article was and was Hayden Hurst struggled with mental health hopes to help others right you read the article and then literally like two three minutes after the article came out you saw outlets coming out with their own headlines to the same story saying NFL player cut wrists in college right like that was essentially a a version of that times you know 10 with all these different first outlets that came out with it and so the trend with mental health because there's far end of the spectrum gory detailed behaviors some more than others like okay with kevin love the thing they always love to latch on is panic attack during a basketball game ran off the basketball court okay Mm -hmm. that's sports with britney spears it's always shaved her head right um look how crazy she looks or lindsey lohan you know such a hot mess from anxiety puts lipstick on her face the wrong way and, and gets it all messed up looks like a hot mess right so they love to tell these far end of the spectrum behavior stories. And so what happens is people read these stories and they see one-off crazy celebrity, right? One-off crazy celebrity. And there's no thread tied together. 
And I can tell you, you know, back to what we're going to be doing on this podcast, we're talking about current events. I was talking about this with Theo last week. Last week, Brett Favre comes out with his own story about uh, abusing opioids back in the 90s, which he wasn't able to come out with at the time because of how he'd be judged. In the same day, you had a big-time Italian soccer coach who decided to retire because of mental health, even though he had this long, rich history. And in the same day, you had a uh, the assistant coach for Alabama football who was resigning voluntarily to work on his mental health. Here's three big figures in the sports mental health space, right? So I'm not even asking media to say, hey, look beyond, you know, one niche area of music, sports, right, entertainment, et cetera. Here's all within sports on the same day, and no one ties it together. There's no threat. Compare that to if three people came out in the, in, in the public eye and all had COVID. That would be tied together in a second. Back in the days when AIDS came out, three people had AIDS would be tied together in a second. There's gory details of mental health that the media likes to hone in on and focus on as look at this person in this awful situation. Look at Delonte West walking around the streets, going through a manic episode with his shirt off, slurring words. Look how awful this is. That's where we have to get the media to be honest. We have to get the media to be honest that the chronology that Theo explained, and, and, and I'm, I'm, sometimes I steal his line, so here I go again, which is trauma, mental health, addiction, and suicide are cousins that all live in the same house. And if we're just going to show the suicide story or we're just going to show the what happens when someone's an addict story and we're not tying it back to the full story of the trauma, then that's what the media is continuously doing and it's never going to be brought together. There's not going to be a greater understanding of society and people aren't going to know, back to your first question or second question, Amy, of how do you start getting people to get help earlier? Education is such a big piece of this. People don't know. Like we learned in school when we learned about just say no to drugs, like drugs are bad. Just say no to them. No one got in front of us in assemblies and said, here's the reason why people turn to drugs. <laughs> here's the things that go on in your life. You, then you deal with emotional pain and suffering where you start using drugs to help you dampen those feelings, right? So there's such an educational piece to this that we need media to be partners. And now the skeptics view, and I'll end on this piece for this question, is back to what Theo is saying with pharma and who controls the messages. What scares me about why maybe the media doesn't talk about it in this intelligent way, okay, you know, maybe part of it is they're not educated in it. That's the, 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 the nice way to see it. But the, the, the kind of conspiracy theorist, maybe, if you will, way of seeing it is to say, Hey, you know, like if, if pharma is controlling the revenue that's coming in and it's a better message to keep these things disconnected and to make it like when you're this one off and you're this crazy person, now you need this magic pill to make you better. That continues to feed the system, the, the organizations that are, are advertising with them and, and, and keeping them afloat. So <laughs> I know I'm revealing a lot there and kind of like a, a master plan in a way, but it's scary. <laughs> it's scary. But, but the reason why we've had so much success is because we're not talking the way the mainstream media talks about mental illness. That's mm -hmm. why we've had this incredible following of people, you know, people are actually coming to us, you know, the, uh, <clears throat> the four major sports are now coming to same here. We're all a little crazy because they love what we're doing because we're not talking. We're talking a different language. We're not talking the same language as everybody else. 
and the people that we're attracting celebrities, you know, all this stuff, like, um, you know, we're changing the conversation. And so, you know, the podcast is going to just, uh, you know, piggyback on what we've already done, but, but, um, you know, the, when people ask me, what do you do for a living? And if I had to give them uh, a title for my business card, I would say, I collect people. That's what <laughs> I, I collect people. And once, once uh, they know that they found their tribe, they never leave. They never leave. And we've experienced that at same here. And we're all a little crazy, right, Eric? People don't leave once they're, yep. they're with us. They don't leave. It's, uh, you know, the, the, the line that, that goes along with that, one that Theo and I can't take credit for is a friend of ours who heard what we were building. They said, it's a tribe that everyone in the world is already a member of. They just don't all know it yet. And once people realize they're a member of that tribe, then to Theo's point, they're like, count me in. What do I got to do? We got people who are getting <laughs> tattoos of same here on themselves and, <laughs> Uh, you know, where, putting the hashtag up in their profiles on social media. You know, it's it's that that's what drives Theo and I and Darren and this whole group on a daily basis. It's not generating revenue. It's not you know a business per se. It's a movement, and it's a it's a it's a changing of of the way that people think. Because the reason why Theo is describing collecting people, we know what going through it is like and how awful it. is is and that everyone in this world is going to go through it at varying levels we want to wrap our arms around those people and say we got you we want to help you we want to be a part of this with you that that brings us joy that's the helping is healing piece of it so so it's it's magical in that way well and uh, and let me just add that uh you know i've been in this space for 13 years okay and the reason why the mental health system worldwide is completely run over is because all the people who are helpers have completely priced themselves out of the market. So the psychologists, psychiatrists, all these people have basically priced themselves out of the market. You, you can't, you can't actually go and find professional help because the majority of people don't have insurance. You know, they can't afford 200 bucks a session. You know, if you're doing cognitive behavioral therapy you have to spend a thousand dollars which is like five sessions to create a relationship with the therapist to build trust so you can get to the point where you're actually talking about your trauma you know and you know the most effective cheapest kind of therapy that i know of is a little thing called group therapy okay you get a bunch of people in a room and you use vulnerability to create safety. And then once you have safety in the room, uh, it is absolutely amazing what happens. People just start popping up and start telling their stories. And one of the greatest examples I can give you is, you know, I do uh, one-day healing conferences with a lady named Kim Barthel, who we wrote a book together, my second book called uh, Conversations with a Rattlesnake. And so we were in Calgary um, doing a full-day uh, trauma uh, healing seminar. And we spent basically the morning telling stories back and forth, creating this safety in the room. 
And right before lunch, there was a gentleman sitting uh, to the right of the stage. And I could see that he was completely 100% engaged. And so when we came back from lunch, he was the guy that I called on first. And he stands up and he basically says, you know, I have never felt this safe in a room in my whole entire life. And he said, um, and I also have this saying, you're only as sick as your secrets. And he said, you know, I've been carrying a secret around for, you know, a long, long time. And he says, I just want everybody in the room to know that I molested my sister for 11 years. And we were all like, holy cow, okay, where's where's this going, right? So we had three women in our audience who had been molested by their brothers. And these three women got out of their chairs, walked over to this man and embraced him. And it was one of the most healing things that I've ever witnessed in my life. And it's the only reason that gets me out of bed is having those kind of healing moments. And so when you get a group of people together who've never talked about what happened to them and you create and use that vulnerability to create the safety, honest to God, that is when the magic of healing happens. And it's the cheapest, most simplest type of therapy is you get a bunch of people in a room who have never told their story and you create safety, they just start popping up and they just start telling their stories. And it is absolutely unbelievable to witness. You guys are are helping people, uh, Theo and Eric, along with Darren. Um, you, and, and I think you mentioned about a movement. You, you're creating a movement. Uh, your messages are resonating, obviously, with people and helping them to feel safe and getting healing. This is a really, I think, as we're demonstrating here, a really complex topic, a topic that's not necessarily well served by headline-driven narratives. So this podcast, uh, We're All a Little Crazy, is is going to benefit from this these long-form conversations. And... Um, in Canada, uh, the most well-known mental health campaign uh, that that we all know of is the Bell Let's Talk, and it's kind of well, it's 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 well known. It 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 has raised awareness, I guess. Um, but um, we had Dan O'Toole, former TSN um, uh, panelist, uh, Dan O'Toole, come out and kind of. Uh, took a took a everyone uh, into a peek behind the curtain sort of thing where where he talked about Bell's uh, actions not mas- ma- matching their message and this being more of a one day PR exercise. So if <laughs> if if people are aware of of Bell and 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 what they're doing, uh, t- t- if you can go into why that that isn't necessarily. Uh, helping and and how your approach is going to be much much different uh, theo can i go a little bit and then you'll <laughs> pick up <laughs> something's coming yeah i mean you, 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 this could this could be three three podcasts in and of itself um so why is the campaign called let's talk right well let, let's begin with the fact that it's championed by a telecommunications company right mm-hmm. so 
the let's talk and understandably so. I mean, I've been in sports sponsorship enough my entire career that I understand that, you know, there needs to be a message that works for the corporate partner in terms of selling their products in order for it to, to, to work. But the problem is the backline understanding of what mental health in our society is, is the let's talk means this is the day of the year where the affected people who what does affected mean? Means they've been labeled with these depression, anxiety, PTSD disorders. We let them talk on that day without judgment. And we're going to hold back and hear them talk about what they're going through, right? Because it's not directional. By saying let's talk and not having something that comes after it, let's talk about what, right? And so why do I bring up the telecommunications piece? Because Theo, as I'll share in a little bit, when you start to you know, push the envelope a little bit and ask the marketing partner to get a little bit more specific and, and directional in what you want people to talk about. They don't want any part of it because let's talk is a simple enough broad-based explanation. How can people talk? They can talk over the phone. They can talk through text messages. But if you're not giving them a game plan of what to talk about, what we most often see in the space is you've got people who are retweeting other people's messages, right? Because there's this campaign behind it that a certain amount of money is donated for every time uh, a tweet is put up or, or retweeted. And so people feel like they're contributing in that way. But back to Theo's point about how more talk doesn't necessarily mean we're going in the right direction. If what people are sharing during that time is depression, anxiety, PTSD, OCD, that's not moving us closer together. That's letting us say during that day, it's those affected people, they get to open their voice. Now compare that and contrast that to someone coming on and saying, wow, when my parents were divorced when I was three years old and I was thrust between going to two different houses uh, uh, as such a young kid and not understanding where my home base was, I never really was able to develop an understanding of what family was like, right? <laughs> that's vulnerability, right? And that's the trauma that Theo's talking about. So take one little word with Bell's Let's Talk and say, add to it, Bell's Let's Talk About Trauma right? Well, there's no friggin' way Bell is going to do that. <laughs> Theo can tell you because he's <laughs> had that conversation with them, right? Because that confuses the message about, we just want people to think about talking on a, on a telephone, right? So, you know, look, social media is, is, is an incredible tool when used, you know, in a, in a, in a benevolent, well-meaning way. And I'm not trying to take away that there's pieces of those campaigns well, money is raised, okay, you know, mental health gets on the radar screen, okay, but if it's not put on the radar screen in a way that's moving the conversation forward, and it's the exact same conversation every single year that hasn't evolved and hasn't developed, I would argue it's actually moving us further back instead of forward. Theo, you want to build off of that? Yeah, like, I agree with everything Eric said, you know, like, what what the hell are we actually talking about, you know, that's... yeah. And like I said, um, nobody wants to talk about trauma, right? We want to we wanna skim across the surface. But where the real healing happens is when you get to the core of the issue, right? And, and that means, you know, you, you have to be incredibly courageous. You have to be um, um, with a bunch of people that you trust and you feel safe around. Right. And so, um, 
you know, I think that's the biggest thing that we've created with same here. And, and we're all a little crazy is, is we have created a safe space where, where we have allowed trauma to be talked about. And ultimately, uh, you know, I had a lady in one of my audiences in, in actually in Brantford, Ontario, who stood up and said, you know what, trauma is the string that binds us all together as human beings. And I was like, that is one of the most true statements I've ever heard in my whole entire life because uh, it wasn't until I talked about my trauma that I really started to, uh, to understand myself, right? Because, you know, after my abuser left my life, like I took over the abuse and I abused myself, right? Because that's all I was taught. And it wasn't until I was able to find people to have a conversation about, you know, uh, you know, my childhood with my mom and dad who both experienced uh, trauma in their life. And that manifested itself into addictive behavior as a coping mechanism to suppress the emotional pain and suffering. And what I've found and what we have found is when we actually get people to open up about their trauma, that's when they have the greatest um, strides in their own personal recovery is because they're, you know, you, you're only as sick as your secrets. And I'll, I'll never forget that, uh, saying, because I was at a very, uh, high profile AA meeting in Manhattan or in uh, Malibu. Uh, and, and it was a birthday meeting and this very famous, uh, Hollywood director, went up to receive his 16 year chip and blow out his cake. And, and, you know, usually people talk for like five or 10 minutes about, you know, their year and what happened and what they did and all that. He got up there. He said seven words. You're only as sick as your secrets. And it was like he threw a ball peen hammer and hit me right between the eyes because at that point I hadn't talked about my secret. And, you know, in 2009, you know, I revealed all of those secrets and not only was i embraced like i was sought out after i told you know i told uh i talked about my trauma and so uh, the bottom line is is uh yes bell has done an unbelievable job of bringing awareness to the subject but here herein lies you know the the 10 million dollar question is we have the highest awareness in the history of our planet that mental health struggles is probably the number one challenge that we face on the planet. And so why isn't all this awareness being turned into action? And you know what that action has given us? The highest suicide rates in the history of our planet. Right? So why isn't this awareness being turned into action and getting people well? Because there are people who, who, are, who have had horrible traumas in their life and who have gone on to be very highly successful people who are experiencing peace, joy, happiness, and serenity. And to me, that is the, the ultimate goal is to go from a depressive state or a state of high anxiety or, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder or OCD, all of these labels, what I, what, what, what I feel in my heart is that we can overcome this. 
but we have to expand the conversation and we have to allow trauma to become part of the conversation because it's always, always, always gets left out. And we have to, uh, uh, you know, I was thinking, cause I was saying how we could talk about this for three days. The, the, the other piece of a bells let's talk type of campaign is it pours fuel on the flames for other campaigns. I won't mention them, Theo, I promise. Um, <laughs> some of them in, some of them in Canada or based in Canada where the campaigns are based on keeping people as victims. And so if the bedrock of what you're doing with Bell's Let's Talk is allow these people who are dealing with these things at the highest level with this label to talk that day, then the campaigns that mirror those throughout the course of the rest of the year that say, I'm this way, right? What that's doing is that's giving them who their identity is and who their purpose is as this let's say, ill or sick person, as opposed to what Theo is saying, let's empower you to get out of that place that you're in, right? So, so again, another reason why these campaigns reinforce people staying in the same place that are at, I think you guys will find this interesting, is when we first launched the name, we're all a little crazy, crazy in quotes, just so people don't think that uh, I'm using the word in the literal sense, and the A is upside down in the, in the actual you know, graphic version of the logo, we're poking fun at the word crazy by saying we're all a little bit of it by really saying there's no such thing as normal, right? And what that <laughs> does is it creates this, 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 you know, engaging openness to allow people to say, yeah, I'm a little crazy too. And I needed to use a word like that that shook people a little bit because if I called it the brain health hour or the mind health hour, you're not going to shake the trees on that other 80% who don't engage in this topic, right? And so who, who do we get the pushback from when, when we first roll out names like we're all a little crazy? We get the pushback from the people who are in the one and five category. And by the way, Theo and I, are full disclosure, are in that category, right? We've been diagnosed with this thing called mental illness from the stuff that we've been through. So we're not trying to talk badly about that group. The problem is that group has identified themselves as I'm worse off than anyone else. Don't put me together with those other people. It's not fair. I'm not part of that group. We're not all crazy. I've been through more, right? That, again, doesn't move us forward. And, and my, where, where, when I'm able to have a long-form conversation like this, where it's on a podcast, I can hold the hands of those people who I'm in the one in five category with, and I can say, look, you got all these campaigns that say stop, stomp, break, erase the stigma. Do you think the stigma is ever going to get broken if we're telling everyone else we have it worse off than you do? You need to stop stigmatizing us. That doesn't work. What works is sharing our similarities and what we all go through and bringing us together as part of the same tribe. So it, like all these campaigns, it's just so fascinating how like it, it, it and, and you guys will appreciate this being a sports podcast running, you know, playoff campaigns for all those years, you know, there's only so many different ways you can get fans excited. So it's like all for one, one goal, one team goal, right? You know, you're trying to get the fans and the, and the, and the, and the players and the organization all rallied together around going for the Stanley cup. There's a reason for that because that tribe mentality when we're all in it together is a good feeling and a feeling of safety. These other messages that have been out there have been protective of a singular group as opposed to looking at society together and saying, how do we attack this topic collectively? 
And so we were actually in this space for the last number of decades have been doing the opposite of what you see sports teams do during these playoff runs. And we've created it, it. We've made it a binary topic instead of one that lives on this continuum that we're all a part of. In terms of expanding the conversation, um, particularly in the sports realm, what are your thoughts on the ever-growing uh, number and, and popularity for, for professional sports teams to employ sports psychologists? Oh, man. <laughs> Is that a whole nother pot? Have I just added a fourth well, podcast yeah. to the well, list? <laughs> well, well, Theo can come at it because he just did an article with it. With If you know Emily Kaplan from ESPN, mm-hmm. um, he, he, he can come at it from the, the athlete's perspective. I can come at it from um, – the I guess executive perspective who worked at teams and saw the players and how they reacted but now someone who's got personal friendships with a lot of these players who are active and are seeing what's happening so so I'll give two sports as an example uh the NFL and the NBA around the same time um required that every team hire mental health professionals okay now take that example and think of the NFL and the NBA as any other corporate entity, right? So corporate entities have these things called EAPs, Employee Assistance Programs, mm-hmm. right? Where there's doctors that you can go see if you're dealing with something. Well, when you have a, an environment where people don't understand what mental health is, and you think when you reach out and ask for that help, you're now labeled as that problem person who's got those issues. Right. In a public-facing type of industry where everything that you say and you do is blasted all across, you know, newspapers. Okay. You might say, well, but you know, here in the States, this is covered by HIPAA, you know, law. So, so there's privacy that's there. These, these men, these women, the ones who get the players get this opportunity to go, they are not feeling comfort. And that's just from having personal conversations that their fear is when I go to the team physician, I go to the team doctor, I'm revealing a certain amount of information that makes me now feel vulnerable that I'm going to be labeled as this thing that when my contract runs up, this is going to be used against me, this information that's being collected on me, right? And even if it's a passing comment and it's not your full, uh, you know, evaluation that's passed off, it's, oh, you know, Theo's been going to that doctor, you know, he's been, he's been seeing our doctor every week for the last three years. What's going on with him? There must be something going on there, right? And so, there, there hasn't been this culture bridge yet it, it, uh, of explaining to players, explaining to staff, explaining to management, we should be working on our brain. Those mental health professionals should be looked at as just the same way there's a strength and conditioning coach for the body, that there's a strength and conditioning coach for the brain, and that we should be encouraging every player to go and be a part of this and not just the players who are dealing with the quote problems right there. Mm-hmm. And, and, and by the way, I'm using that in, 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 a, in a scenario, NFL and NBA, where they've hired the resources, <laughs> they have them there, and what the problems are with getting the players to go and use the resources. I think where Theo will come from his angle is when the resources aren't even there and what, what do the players do. So we're still far from using these resources in a way that's, um, you know, moving us forward in a way that, that, that there's a great understanding. I'll, I'll, I'll pass up to Theo on this comment. If you want to read or any of your, your, your followers want to read a really interesting article that, um, that publication, the players tribune, mm-hmm. there was an article written by uh, one of the former NBA players, Ben Gordon. And Ben played at UConn, had a really uh, successful career there. 
And then uh, his probably his best years are with the Chicago Bulls. And now he's retroactively after his career is over, he's talking about, you know, his mental health while he was a player. And he said, well, when they told me to go meet with a mental health professional based on what I was dealing with, immediately my mind went to what is some middle-aged white woman with glasses going to tell me about my life that I don't already know. <laughs> right. And I, 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 I speak in real terms. And I'm just taking his words directly mm-hmm. from the article, but that's the way that unfortunately we think about doctors. It's like, who's the shrink that's going to do this to me that doesn't know about me, that doesn't understand me as a person that's just going to put a label on me. Why am I going to go and talk to them? And so that's what we have to break the barrier down on. That's what we hope these conversations are for. So Theo, you want to take yeah. off from that? Yeah. So, um, you know, when I was, when I was going through all of my trauma history, I actually found a lot of gifts in the adversity, right? Because what, you know, living with my parents and then being sexually abused for two and a half years, it was a tremendous amount of adversity, right? And what it built in me is it built resilience in me. And I think the youth of today have no resilience because we haven't allowed them to face any adversity. So when adversity comes, they have no clue how to handle it. Right. And, uh, you know, I, I was picked 450th in the draft because the first year I, I was eligible, I didn't get drafted. And then the following year, I got drafted by the Calgary Flames, 166 overall in the eighth round. And at that time, you know, I was five foot six, 150 pounds. And the guys that I was competing against were six feet, 200 pounds. So the law of physics says that Theo Fleury is not going to have a professional hockey career. And, you know, what was interesting is when I look in the mirror, I don't see somebody who's five foot six. I see somebody who, who's, <laughs> I see somebody who's willing to work harder than everybody who has incredible amount of resilience, who is mentally tough, you know, and a really smart guy, bright guy. So I'm going to figure this out. And, you know, what I figured out early on in my career was 90% of the guys that I was playing against weren't mentally tough as I was. And because they weren't as mentally tough as I was, I could take them on the ice and do whatever I wanted to them because they weren't willing to compete at the highest level. And because I had faced so much adversity in my life, it was my mental strength that made me, you know, the player that I was because, and it's the reason why I was picked for all the Canadian teams, because they knew that when the, when the game was on the line and the highest amount of pressure was going to be applied, that Theo Fleury wasn't a guy that was going to crack. He was a guy that would be able to figure it out. And so, uh, you know, 95% of the guys who play in the NHL, they all, they have all the ability and talent in the world. And what sets apart the Alexander Ovechkins and the Sidney Crosby's from the other guys is they are mentally tough, right? But we don't work on that. We don't work on that. There's no program in place 
to create resilience in our players, you know, so when the highest amount of pressure or the highest amount of adversity they're going to face, they crack, they fold up like a cheap lawn chair, but there are things out there where you can actually teach your players to become more resilient, to become more mentally tough. And, and, you know, it's, it's interesting that you asked that question because, you know, every team has a strength and conditioning coach, Mm -hmm. but why, why don't they have a a mental health coach? And, you know, what was really kind of neat is we did actually have a sports psychologist when I, when I came to Calgary and I spent a lot of time with this particular guy working on the mental side of my game, because I knew that it was the only thing that was going to set me apart. Like I had, I had just as much skill. I just had much ability and talent as everybody else, but they were bigger and stronger than I was. So I had to figure out a way uh, to be successful. Right. And I needed room on the ice to do what I do best. Well, how do I do that? I can't physically intimidate, you know, people, but I can certainly with their minds, you know, and, and so that's what I did on the ice. And I was very unpredictable because you didn't know whether you didn't know whether I was going to kiss you or cut your eye out. And that's, that's the attitude I wanted my opponent to have. And, and, And because of that, you know, I played 15 years in the NHL when at the beginning of my career, nobody thought that I was going to play one game in the national hockey league. And so I had to figure out a way to be successful. And I would say 95% of the reason why I was successful was because of how I approached the game mentally. But that's just it. You were 15 years in the, in the NHL. I mean, it's one thing to say, uh, and, and you, you absolutely are a pioneer when it comes to being open about trauma, but, but I think, I think you should also get credit and, and maybe your legacy is in the NHL is, um, you know, and you said uh, as a smaller player, you paved the way for other players like uh, Johnny Gaudreau or an Alex DeBrinket or uh, Brendan Gallagher with the Canadians. Because over those 15 years, you churned out uh, Hockey Hall of Fame type numbers, uh, point a game player in the regular season, point a game player in the playoffs, um, all- along with the penalty minutes making you unpredictable. Uh, but, um, so I think, I think there's, there's that legacy to be respected as well. And, and I guess, uh, in today's NHL, um, who is, who is a, a current day Theo Fleury or a Theo Fleury type player, uh, that you respect and that, that, uh, that you like to watch? Well, I would say that there are two guys, one just recently retired and was put in the Hockey Hall of Fame. The other guy plays for the Boston Bruins. Are the only two small players who would have had success in our era. Every other one, not a chance. And that's Martin St. Louis and Brad Marchand. Other than that, the other the other small guys, maybe Brendan Gallagher, uh, you know, possibly could have played in, in our era. But you know, I always say there's only one Theo Fleury. They only made one of they only made one they only made one of me. But, uh, you know, uh, people often say, you know, you'd be great in this new NHL. And I was like, you know what? I'd probably be in the penalty box the whole night, you know. <laughs> but, uh, um, you know, I absolutely loved the era that I played in. Um, it was the greatest accumulation of superstars 
in one era uh, that we'll ever see in the history of our game. And, uh, you know, I always laugh when, you know, a Connor McDavid or a Austin Matthews comes and everybody's freaking out and all this. And I go, when I played, there was 30 of those guys in the league when I was playing. Well, uh, and re- go, no, go right ahead. Re- I, yeah. I just, you know, look, I, I'm maybe I'm, I become a Theo uh, promoter just getting to know him the way that I have. <laughs> and obviously, you know, knowing what I know about him and what I've learned about, mental health as it pertains to then looking at high performance individuals, whether it's athletes or, or what have you. And, and for a podcast like yours, where, you know, it's in Canada, it's got fans, it's got people who are going to listen to it, who are fans of hockey generally. Mm-hmm. And to, 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 to look at Theo's career and to see that things happened to him as a child. And then he played in the NHL for the 15 years that you spoke about. And he performed at the high level that he did while never being told by anyone, right? This is, it, it was society's, I think, mistake that still unfortunately runs rampant of not educating people, not understanding what we go through. And then when we feel that psychological pain, we turn to the things on the dark side, like drugs, alcohol, gambling, sex, you know, food. And and Theo admittedly, not only is he vulnerable about his story, he's admitted admit, he admits what he turned to, right? And so, I can speak from the perspective of an Islander fan, bringing a full circle now towards the end of this talk. Of you know, Theo Fleury was playing for the Rangers. Oh, he's a he gets in people's faces. You know, he no one likes him. He's he's so hard in terms of how he gets under people's skin, right? And people's perception now when it's sports reporters or it's people who make decisions about reflecting back on his career and is Theo deserving and worthy of, of the NHL Hall of Fame, there's no question his numbers say that he is, right? Yeah. And so if, if what Theo is doing with his life now is educating people on what happens to us and then what we have to unlearn and then how we heal and then how we could potentially pay it forward, He's living that reality right now, right? He's not hiding from the fact that some of the things that he did when he was a player maybe weren't, you know, received as well as, as, you know, a player who wins a Lady Bing award all the time, right? But, But in doing that, I think the beautiful part about his story is how it's come full circle and how he's educating people. And my hope would be that the, the, the powers that be that make these decisions understand that hear what he went through, hear probably why he was the way he was in certain aspects when he was playing. But now what he's learned from that and he's giving back to society, what better story? Like if you were going to write a movie oh, yeah. script, what could be better than that? Um, so anyway, that's my little, when we get on these, you know, we're <laughs> fortunate enough to get on these hockey shows like you have. It, it's it's my place because Theo's not going to politic and talk about it for himself. So I'm going to do it. That I think people <laughs> should look at the bigger picture. Well, I think that we could, um, I, I think we could continue to have this conversation for probably another couple of hours. Um, and I and I think perhaps at some point down the road here soon, maybe we'll have to have have you guys back on again to like to continue that. the conversation as as things evolve. Um, it's been a fascinating discussion. We can't thank you enough for taking time uh 
today to talk about uh, this topic for your work in this in this space and and also for this initiative uh, with the two of you and Darren Ravel. Uh, the new podcast is called We're All a Little Crazy, uh, premiering on the Hockey Podcast Network. Um, Theo, Eric, thank you so much uh, for your time today. It was really a pleasure getting to talk to both of you. <laughs> Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And, and I'll just leave you with this is if you struggle with mental health challenges, guess what? You're in the majority. You're not in the minority. And if you are in the majority, guess what? You're now a healer and your story can help heal somebody else. So don't be afraid to talk about your truth, to talk about your secrets, because when you finally find the courage and the strength to do that, Somebody who's listening to your story is going to be incredibly inspired to do the to do exactly what you're doing, and that's how we're going to get out of this. We want to thank uh, Eric and Theo again for uh, being having an open, um, honest uh, conversation that led to a very powerful dialogue and uh, and a very important dialogue. Um, their podcast will, just a reminder, is called uh, We're All a Little Crazy, and that will be appearing on the Hockey Podcast Network uh, this week. Absolutely. We're so grateful to them for, the, for, the, for their time, for their insight, for their honesty, uh, and we hope that you found something uh, relatable in today's conversation and can help uh, spread the word and spread the message as well. Uh, it's, a, it's a very special episode we invite you to share it with your friends, whether they're hockey fans or not. Uh, share this with your friends and loved ones. And remember, you can also follow us on Twitter at Habs Connection, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can visit our website at CanadiansConnection.com. And uh, until next time, thanks so much for joining us here on Rocket Sports Radio. Click subscribe so you never miss an episode of Canadians Connection. Visit allhabs.net for breaking news about the Montreal Canadiens.